Good morning. So you're the crowd that slept in a little maybe? That's okay. You'll still get lots of sun because it doesn't sit for a long time. Well, as Ryan said, my name is Steve Marshman, one of the elders here. And turning your Bibles to John chapter 3, either your Bibles or your apps. And uh, before we get started, I just want to give you a quick update on Vicki. As most of you have heard, she has cancer. She has leukemia. Uh, and it's been a tough road, but we really celebrate good news. And we got some good news this week that her sister is a bone marrow match. And that is just, it's, Vicki could literally walk like three feet above the ground when she heard that. And she's not only a match, she's a very high quality match. So uh, it's looking more and more likely that she's going to have a bone marrow transplant. For those of you that are praying for us, I just want to say thank you. I mean, I think at last count there's like over 100 people that we've counted that are praying for us regularly and that's the reason why there's a match because God has shown us favor. So we thank you. Let's pray and get into the word. Father, we thank you for the good news of today. We thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you for all the good things you give us, which are so many. And we thank you for the word that we're going to now dig into. And all God's people said, amen. Well, for today, we're going to look at just two verses out of John chapter 3. And that's verses 14 and 15. John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. So let's read these. Uh, I'll read them to you. Uh, they might be on the screen. They are on the screen. Here we go. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. Why is Jesus talking about snakes in the wilderness. And before we get into this, I want to tell you right off the bat, I'm one of those people that hates snakes. I mean, I really hate snakes. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll kill spiders for my kids all day long, but snakes, you know, Vicky's actually pretty good at chasing them down. Um, but snakes, they're just, I don't like them. And when I was a kid in middle school, I had a friend <clears throat> who, who had a pet snake. And he was always trying to get me to come over to his house to look at his pet snake. I never did it because he always wanted me to come over for feeding time because he fed, he fed this snake rats. And I'm like, you know, the only thing worse than snakes for me is rats because I, I, view, I view rats, they're like snakes with feet. I mean, they, they're the worst. I absolutely hate rats. But if you're here today and you have a pet snake, do me a favor, don't tell me because I don't really want to know about it. And someday that snake just might die, might I suggest a puppy. It's not a bad substitute for a pet. Okay, next, here we go. Uh, next verse is what? After John 13 and 14 is John 3.16, the very, very famous verse, and we're going to look at where this fits in context to today's verses. As you know, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So these two verses we're going to look at today are actually the two verses before the famous verse, John 3.16. But we also need to go back to the beginning of the passage, the beginning of John 3, to understand why Jesus is talking about snakes in the wilderness and what's that all about. And we're not going to read those verses. If you would, just allow me to summarize those. Uh, you're probably familiar, if you've read John at all, with the story of Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was one of the Pharisees, one of the Sanhedrin. 
he had some questions for Jesus. He believed that Jesus was sent by God. Uh, and he had some questions for him. And I believe that Nicodemus was probably a good guy. He wasn't trying to trick Jesus. He had some legitimate questions for Jesus. And he goes and has this conversation with Jesus. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is confused. And you and I would have been confused at that point in time as well. And then Jesus goes on to say you must be born of the spirit. And Nicodemus still doesn't get it, but he's trying to get it. And in verse 9, you, you see Nicodemus just sound totally exasperated. He says, how can this be? How is it that I can be born again and born of the Spirit and see the kingdom of God? Well, Jesus knows Nicodemus' background. And out of love, Jesus says, I'm going to explain this to you, Nicodemus, relative to your knowledge base which is the Old Testament because he was a rabbi. He knew, he knew the scriptures. Nicodemus probably taught out of the Old Testament. So when, when we see these verses, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, Nicodemus, when he's hearing that, he's instantly thinking back to the Jewish scripture story in Numbers chapter 21. So we're going to turn there. Go ahead and turn there in your Bible or your apps. Numbers chapter 21, fourth book in your Bible, Exodus, Leviticus, num, Exodus, Leviticus, no, uh, wait a minute, Genesis, you got to start with Genesis, where am I? I'm way ahead of myself. The Bible starts with Genesis, right? Okay, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, fourth book in the Bible. So there we go. So go there and go to chapter 21. And I'm going to give you guys the, the summary of what's going on so far as you turn there. So this is the end of Moses' life. He had already led the Israelites out of Egypt. He had already gone to Mount Sinai and got the Ten Commandments. He'd already parted the Red Sea. He'd already gotten the instructions to, to how to build the, the tabernacle. And at this point in time, they're on the way to the Promised Land. And it's a trip that should have taken about two weeks. That's all it should take. But it ended up taking 40 years. And the reason why it took 40 years is because the Israelites were constantly sinning and rebelling against God over and over to the point where God said, you're going to spend 40 years in the wilderness wandering. I'm going to teach you some lessons. So that's what's going on. We're going to dive in the story in Numbers chapter 21, verse 4. They traveled, the Israelites traveled from Mount Hor along to the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord answered and said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Now, if that's a new story to you, it's worth going back and reading again because there's a lot going on there. And let's face it, it's kind of a bizarre story, isn't it? I mean, it's just a really interesting, fascinating story. So let's, let's walk through it and see what's going on. First, 
They were going around Edom. And the reason why is because the king of Edom refused to let Israelites take a shortcut through their land. It would have been a shorter way to get to the promised land. But the king of Edom said, no. So they had to go the long way. And I don't know about you, but I don't like going the long way. When I have to go the long way, I get impatient and I get grumbly and I, and I sometimes lose my temper because I don't want to go the long way. I want to go directly there and get on with it. And, and you know that when you get impatient, also, it often leads to grumbling. And this is what the Israelites are doing. And they're really laying it on Moses. Let's look at what they say. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die? To die. And notice their complaints. They say, there's no bread and we detest this miserable food. So which is it? Is it no food or is it miserable food? Their, their complaints are even off a little bit. Well, by verse 6, God has had enough and he sends venomous snakes, which is kind of bizarre. It's a bizarre reaction. ESV actually says he sent fiery serpents. And we don't know... Uh, if the fiery refers to the, the color of the serpents or possibly the, the fiery burn from the sting. But either way, we know from the description and the fact that people were actually dying. These aren't garden snakes. These are poisonous, venomous snakes. You get bit and you're going to die. Crazy. So we could be like overly troubled by this event saying, God, why would you do this? To your people. And we need to know this God is not acting unjustly. These folks were rebelling and rebelling and rebelling, and they were trying to, to, to do the right thing, but they weren't, and over and over and over. And then God finally says, Enough. They weren't learning the lessons that God had taught them the easy way, so God's gonna teach them the hard way. And it's a tough lesson for us to get. But notice the response of the people. They said this We sinned. That's a good place to be when you find out you've sinned. You should say, yes, confession, agreement with God. We sin. Now, the Israelites see the errors of their ways, and they ask Moses to pray for them. And that's another thing to do when you realize you sin is to stop, confess, and pray. And we need to pause right now and ask ourselves a question. Is there sin in our life? that we're not aware of, that we're not cognizant of? Are we stiff-arming God in some way? We're in our little world doing our own thing and we're, we're grumbling or complaining about something and, and we don't even know it. We don't even know it's sin. You know, maybe it's something like a good job that you have that God's provided, yet you're grumbling at work. That could be a sin that you're unaware of. So let's not do that as a church. Let's be a church that's quick to confess. Well, back to the story. Moses prays for God to remove the snakes. Like, God, take these snakes away. That makes sense. That's probably what I would have prayed too. But God answers Moses in a very different way. He doesn't take the snakes away. Instead, he gives Moses some pretty bizarre instructions. Look what he tells Moses to do. Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. And I don't know about you, but if, if I were Moses, I would hear that and my thought, I would say, you want me to do what? I mean, really? God, why not just take, get rid of the snakes? You want me to put a snake, the very symbol of sin, and put it on a pole. 
But Moses doesn't question God because by this point in Moses' life, he's gone through a lot. Remember, it says that towards the end of his life, he's gone through a lot. And he's learned when God tells him to do something, the wise thing to do is just obey. So a couple things to notice here in this passage. First is that this, God did not remove the snakes like Moses asked. Sometimes we pray and God doesn't answer the prayer in the way we ask. Instead, he provides a way of salvation from the deadly snakes. That's what God does. Instead of removing them, he provides a way of salvation. And the way is you get bit, you look at the bronze snake on a pole, and you don't die. And this is the one that really just, this blows my mind about this passage is notice the symbol God tells Moses to put on a pole. Again, if it were me, I would probably put a symbol of God on the pole, right? Maybe an eagle, you know, a symbol of strength. Maybe a dove, a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Maybe one of those eternal flames like they have in the Olympics. But that's not what God says. He says put a snake on a pole. And in the Bible, all throughout, snakes and serpents, they, they represent evil. They represent sin. So when people were looking at this snake on a pole for salvation... They were actually looking at their sin. And we don't want to miss this. We don't want to miss what's going on here. Through Moses, God says, instead of taking away the snakes, I'm going to answer your prayer a different way. I'm going to leave the deadly snakes, and I'm going to have you look at your sin and live. And it says it right in the passage. When anyone was bitten by a snake, they looked at the bronze snake, and they lived. So if you want to live... And if I want to live, and if the Israelites in their day, if they want to live, they had to look at their sin, acknowledge their sin, deal with their sin. So fast forward, do you think this bronze snake became popular among the people? I mean, absolutely. Unfortunately, it became an idol worship object. It became something that the Israelites actually took and burned incense to it. And a full 700 years later, in 2 Kings 18, you could read about it. King Hezekiah actually had to destroy the bronze snake that was on a pole. The Israelites had actually given it a name. They called it Nehushtan. And they worshipped it like another god and burnt incense to it like another god. And isn't that just like us to take a good thing that God gives us and turn it into a bad thing? Um, well, So let, with that as a background, let's turn back to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 in verse 14. So now when we read verse 14, it says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now with that Old Testament background that Jesus references, we can ask this question. And it's a, it's a tough question. Why is Jesus comparing himself on the cross with a snake on a pole? Why is Jesus comparing himself to something that represents sin? What's this metaphor that Jesus is using to explain to Nicodemus the things of the kingdom of God? What's it all about? And the simple answer is this. For the Israelites, looking to the bronze serpent saved people from physical death. They were physically going to die if they didn't look at the snake after they were bitten. However, for us, looking to Jesus on the cross saves us from eternal death. We still have physical death unless Jesus comes back before we die. We still have physical death. But if we believe in Jesus, if we look to Jesus, we have eternal life, not eternal 
death. This is this super profound, loving message of Jesus. Because the snake represents sin. The world that we live in, and you guys know this if you've been around church for anything more than a couple weeks, we know that the church teaches something different than the world. The world tells us to ignore our sins. It's not that bad. You know, everybody's doing it. It's not that big of a deal. Or worse, the world will say, that's old-fashioned of you, church. That's not even a sin anymore. Maybe it used to be a sin, but it's not now. We've progressed. We're enlightened. So we're getting this lie from the devil through the world that our sins aren't sin or that our sins aren't bad. But Jesus confronts sin head on. He goes to the cross. In humble obedience, he says, I'm going to take your sin. And what's really happening here is God the Father, in love for us, puts our sins onto Jesus. God puts our sins onto Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way. God made him who had no sin. God made Jesus who had no sin. He never sinned. He never became sinful. He was never a sinner. He made him to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So God the Father puts our sins on Jesus. Jesus is crucified for our sin out of a deep, deep love. And notice this. The verse says, Jesus says, this is coming off of his lips. He says, I must do this. If I love you, I must take on your sin and die for you. Otherwise, you won't have eternal life. That's what's going on in this passage. Now, I just want to stop and kind of get a little real, kind of down to earth for a second. In some ways, if you've been going to church for a while... It's almost become too easy for us to say, Jesus died for our sins. Now, that's true. It's absolutely true. And we should say that. But I wonder sometimes if we say, Jesus died for our sins, and say it in the wrong context, if we absolutely get the gravity of what that actually means, the gravity of sin. Because sin is like a cancer. Sin is like the leukemia that Vicky has. Untreated, it's going to kill her. She's going to die of leukemia if it's not treated. And sin is like that. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, our sins are put on Jesus. He's lifted up on the cross and he dies. He dies because of our sins put on him. So the thing for us to do today is ask ourselves, when we look at Jesus dying on the cross, we are looking at our sins. What sins are we looking at? What sins, when you see Jesus on the cross in your mind's eye, what sins that you and I have committed come to mind? Because those sins are put onto Jesus. When you look at pornography, that sin gets put on Jesus. When you have an adulterous affair, that sin gets put on Jesus. When you're cheating on your taxes, that sin gets put on Jesus. When you're stealing, that sin gets put on Jesus. When you're grumbling, when you're gossiping, when you're doing anything out of character of God, that sin gets put on Jesus. And it got real quiet. Because it's heavy. It should be heavy. When we're actually confronted with our sin, we should not be happy. We should be kind of depressed. But there is good news. 
Because there's more to what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, yes, I'm lifted up on the cross to die for your sins. But in John's recording of, this, of what Jesus says, he actually does this really cool thing in the Greek. And if you have a 2011 version of the NIV Bible, there's a footnote. And you can look at the footnote. And it says, lifted up also means exalted. So when John's recording this, this message, he's actually given us a little bit of a double meaning. It's not a tricky thing, whatever. It's just it's in the Greek. All the scholars uh, uh, agree to this, that Jesus is lifted up on the cross to die. But Jesus is also, good news, exalted by God the Father. Jesus is exalted by God the Father. That's another meaning of lifted up. So what's happening here is, yeah, it's super sad and depressing. But at the same time, Jesus is victorious over our sin. He crushes sin. He defeats death. And God the Father is pleased and he's exalted. Jesus is exalted to be glorified to the right hand of the Father. The Father exalts Jesus to the very highest place he can go to. The right hand of God. Now when we hear right hand of God, we go, oh, that's kind of cool. He's on the right hand of God. In the Bible, right hand means place of favor, place of authority, place of honor. There is no higher place you can go. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, we'll put it up on the screen. It's a beautiful summary of what's going on here. Let's uh, take a look at this. The sun, Hebrews 1, verse 3, the sun, which is Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, that's Jesus dying on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father. Yes, he's lifted up on the cross, obedient to death. But he's also exalted to the highest place, God's side. Jesus comes down from heaven and is crucified. And then he goes back up to heaven, exalted. This is the best news we're ever going to hear. And nobody else could do this. Muhammad didn't do this. Buddha didn't do this. Joseph Smith didn't do this. Nobody has or ever will do this. Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only way to life. Now, you and I might hear this and go, where is this place, right? I want to go there. And we do want to go there. But where is it? Is it a physical place? And here's the short summary. The Bible tells us a lot about the future heaven. When Jesus comes back, he's going to create Recreate, make all things new, new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. We're going to get resurrected bodies. We have a lot of information about that. But the current heaven, the heaven right now, a place where God dwells, we don't know a ton about it. You know, you could grab your iPhone and put it in there on Google Maps. Not going to get directions. Uh, I got to try that, by the way. I'm a little scared too, frankly. Uh, but I believe it's a real physical place. I'm not sure if I'm right about that. But I think it is. But here's what I do know because the Bible says it over and over and over. Whether or not we know exactly where this right hand of God is, we know this. Jesus is alive today and he's by the Father's side. That, you could just camp out on that truth. Wherever the current heaven is, Jesus is alive today and he's by the Father's side. So we take these two verses and look at them and say, how do, how do we apply them? Well, the application's right in the verse because Jesus is the master teacher. 
He not only tells Nicodemus what's going on, but he tells him why. Look at John 3.15. He says, why am I doing this? That everyone who believes may have eternal life in him, in Jesus. That phrase from the lips of Jesus is the good news. It is the good news. A couple words in there that are important for us to define so we know what Jesus is talking about. Eternal life literally means the life in the age to come. The life when Jesus comes back. The eternal life. Because the Bible talks about eternal life in Jesus. And those who have received Jesus get eternal life. Those who reject Jesus get eternal death. And they're doomed to the lake of fire and experience a second death. But those who believe in Jesus receive eternal life. And here's the thing about eternal life that I think is super helpful for us today. When does eternal life start? Well, in a way it starts after the day of judgment. But in another way it starts right now. The day you believe. When you believe into Jesus, you are experiencing eternal life. The way Jesus said it real clearly is said, I had come that you might have life and have it abundantly. We don't get the full abundance of Jesus until we get to the future heaven and our resurrected bodies. But right now today, if you believe in Jesus, you can experience at least a portion of eternal life. But the real key word here, the hinge word is believe. Believe's the one and only requirement that Jesus has for us to receive the gift of eternal life. Believe in Jesus. You may have heard it described in different settings as trusting in Jesus. That's good. That's accurate. You might hear it described as a saving faith in Jesus. That's also good. That's also accurate. John chooses to use the word believe. And since we're in John, let's stick with the word believe today. And I want to share you something that, I, that for me was like a, this golden nugget. And what it is is this. It's in the Greek. I, I don't know Greek. I never studied Greek. And because of that, I like to read scholars that really know Greek. And there's a, there's a gentleman who runs biblical training. It's a website, biblicaltraining.org. You can check out all of his lectures on uh, John. Um, he, he talks about what this word believe means in the original Greek. And this guy's got some street cred. Bill Mounts is on the NIV translation committee. If you have an NIV Bible, he's part of the team that translate the, translates the Greek words into English. And this is what Bill Mounts says about the word believe. It's kind of long, so it'll be on the screen so you can kind of follow along. This is Bill Mounts uh, talking about the Greek believe. The Greek is not believe in. The Greek is believe into. And John is breaking Greek grammar. And for that, I'm thankful because I'm pretty bad at English grammar, so it's nice to know that, that, that John can do that with Greek. But he's doing it intentionally. Bill Mounts goes on to say, This horrible Greek grammar, which we can't find in any of the archives of ancient Greek literature, is intentionally terrible Greek. Because John doesn't want us to misunderstand belief as a simple intellectual assent. So John's using Bad Greek grammar to make a point. The preposition into means that we are moving out of ourselves and into Jesus, that there's movement. So that's the question for you and me today. This is the big question of today. Have we made our belief in Jesus simple intellectual belief or intellectual agreement? Yeah, I agree with all those facts. What a huge mistake that would be if that's as far as we get. 
Because believing in Jesus is much more than that. There's a movement. Bill Mounts goes on to say this. I think that what John is saying is that biblical belief is no longer believing in ourselves, but transferring our trust out of ourselves and into Jesus. Now we know that's hard, right? Transferring trust is hard. It's hard to do that. My lovely bride, Vicki, is going to get a chance to do that, hopefully, with this bone marrow transplant. She could read all about bone marrow transplant and have an intellectual agreement that that's a good thing to do and that she should do it. It's a whole other thing to actually do it. To sit on the table, get chemo, kill all of her blood cells, and then receive her sister's bone marrow cells. That's a whole different level of trust than saying, yeah, I believe it. It's literally believing into it. So what we're going to do now is close up your Bibles and ask ourselves, how do we respond to this? Today, tomorrow, this week, how is Jesus asking you and me to move? How am I this week going to trust him more and believe into him? What is it I can do? Well, in a word, it takes humility, swallowing our pride. I think for most people that haven't actually gotten a deep relationship into Jesus, with Jesus and haven't really believed into Jesus, at some point there's a speed bump of pride that gets in the way. Because it's humbling to say, I'm going to die to self and follow Jesus. But there's a couple of things we need to do to actually get to that place to move into Jesus. The first thing is we need to look at our sin. You need to look at yours. I need to look at mine. I don't need to know what your sins are. You don't need to know what my sins are. But when you look in the cross and when I look at the cross, I need to see my sins. I need to see them for what they are. I need to see that God the Father in his love put those sins on Jesus. And then Jesus literally died because of that. And part of the problem is today you hear people say, ah, there's no way my sin is too ugly. Steve, you don't know what I've done. There's no way a loving God is going to take that ugly, ugly sin and put that on Jesus. And I'm here to tell you that, yes, he will. Because God loves you so much. Think of David. King David, adulterer, murderer. Paul, murderer. Both had their sins put on Jesus. And God said yes to that. The other extreme is you say, ah, my sin's not that bad. It really isn't that bad. I'm basically a good person. God's not going to subject me to eternal death. But see, here's the problem with sin. The smallest, little, tiniest bit of sin is polluting us. In Vicky's body, I don't think her leukemia is from sin, but in her body there's little microscopic leukemia cells that are killing her. And that's the way sin gets us. So when we take communion in a bit, that's a beautiful time to spend some time with Jesus, look at your sins, confess your sins, repent and turn away and deal with your sin, do something else. And then the second thing we can do is really simple. It's just to worship Jesus. I'm going to ask the band to come up and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about how do we worship Jesus. Why do we worship Jesus? Because he is the exalted one. God the Father exalted Jesus, lifted Jesus up to the right hand 
of his side, and he sits on the throne. Only Jesus can give us a cure. When Vicki hopefully goes for this bone marrow transplant, there's a potential she won't survive from it. They don't have a 100% cure rate, but Jesus has a 100% cure rate. 100%. He never fails. When you confess and believe into Jesus, you will be healed. You will be cured. 100%. No questions asked. Because Jesus is the one that defeats death. He's the one that provides the purifications for our sins. He is the Son of Man. He is the Messiah. Jesus is the one that's coming back to make all things new again. Jesus is the one with good news. One of the, one of the beautiful pictures in the Bible to me is the, the story of the potter and the clay. And in that story, God is the potter and the clay is us. And when we sin and, and mess up, God in his love, he doesn't take that clay and throw it in the trash. He doesn't, he remolds it, he reshapes it and makes it beautiful again. And that's the business that God's in. He's in the business of taking a broken people, you and me, and shaping us and making us beautiful again. That is good news. That's the best news we're ever gonna hear because that's what leads to eternal life. So I'm going to ask you now just to bow your heads. I'm going to pray for some of you here today. This is brand new. You've never believed into Jesus. I'm going to lead you in a prayer where you could do that. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm just going to ask you to talk to God the Father and pray with me. And for those who have been here for years yet, you're kind of stuck. You need to move farther. You need to make some movement in your, in your trust and belief in Jesus. I'm going to pray for you as well. And then we'll have some worship time. Uh, the song set that's coming up is spot on with what we've been talking about. So I encourage you to truly worship Jesus, the exalted one, uh, after we pray. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your son, your only son, to earth to save us. You were the one, you're the only one that can save us. And we thank you for that, Lord Jesus. When we look at the cross right now, Lord, I pray that you would bring sins to mind of your people, sins that need to be confessed, sins that need to be dealt with, sins that need to be crushed. Thank you, Jesus, for crushing sin and defeating sin. Lord, help us to learn to be repentant and Lord, as we enter a time of worship, help us to see you sitting on the throne, the right hand of the Father. You are the only one that's worthy of our honor and praise as we do that right now.